0: Lima Delta Echo Lima Delta Echo This is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona USA
1: depending on what side of the world you're on, where you're listening to us. We are a live shortwave radio station. If you're not picking us up live on the shortwave radio, then you're getting us by podcast. There is a difference because the radio broadcast is live. And now we're going into the five and six hour time frame. If I can stay up that late. We have a lot of listeners uh, on shortwave um, if you can pick us up that's the big problem and so we we kind of uh, edit that down for the podcast we don't edit the content we just edit the time so because people don't usually have um you know th- that amount of time to sit down and just listen to us I and mean, then they can and also people have uh sent us emails asking what that weird uh sound is in the background that, folks, is the live shortwave radio. So we, we used to record these in studio, so there was a, a lot of clarity there and no static, which is what you get on most podcasts. Um, and, I mean, if you're listening to us on the radio, you're going to get this, the static anyway. That just comes with shortwave radio. Uh, and we've had listeners in the past send us uh, recorded sessions that they've picked up in different places in the United States and overseas uh, and send it to us uh, in mp3 most of the time. Um, Murky's not here. Uh, she's just working on station programming. Well, she's here. She's she's in the studio. But she's preferring to just do uh, the, the producing part right now. We'll, we'll get She'll get with us during the holidays and Thanksgiving. And that's coming up. And Christmas and for sure on New Year's. She just wants to take a break. So it's just it's just me you have to put up with. And we're not on Earth.
2: No shit, baby. I can dig it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, Murky. All right. We're not on Earth.
2: No shit, baby. Uh,
1: yes, I, I I know we're not. I on I can earth. dig it.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Continuing on with our brilliant station programmer in the
3: background. <laughs>
1: Anyway, can we move forward now, Murky? Give me a nod. (laughs) Okay, all right. Love you.
0: You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
1: So, um, yeah, yeah, the, the, the podcast that you'll get on our major uh, place that you pick those up is on SoundCloud. We, uh, we're in about 50, 60 different places now, uh, but they all go back to uh, SoundCloud. And we do have a, a sort of weird site on um, archive.org where we just back up everything in case we have an emergency for our podcast. And those are not well advertised, but you can find us there if, if there's no other way to uh, pick us up. So, um, right. And so I I think I was talking about that there are some people have complained, a few listeners. I think if you're a long term listener, then you know that we've started to to record our broadcast for for the podcast um, from a a live shortwave radio. So you get the static. And that's what we want you to do is have a feel for um, to have a feel for live radio. And that's where we, I think we, we differ a lot from these, the, the podcast. We're not really too interested in, in this clarity of sound. In fact, we're rebels against, uh, we, we want analog. Uh, and so that and, and as, as often as we can with our music, we also record that off of either our 1918 uh, record player or a newer one. So we like to bring you the music. Uh, we have a nice turntable too, of course, two or three of them. That Marky's put in, so you can pick up. And hear the the beautiful analog sound. Anyway, there you are out there in the nighttime, hopefully, because that's when we like you to pick us up, and that's usually when I'm on the shortwave radio. The problem with that is I don't get any sleep. <laughs> I have to sleep all day. Uh, we were doing nightly broadcasts, but it's got kind of it's got kind of tough, and so um, we did when we can. How's that? So um, yeah. So today is the uh, 13th of November, 2023. Uh, did I say the 13th? <laughs> I'm doing everything but being on the radio show. I was just reading an email here talking about flying saucers. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight is is flying saucers. Have I had a, a personal experiences with them? Yeah, I, I guess kind of. Um, i do have some uh, unusual phenomenons that i see in the sky and i'll, I'll talk a little bit about that but i want to i want to talk about uh, the concept of flying saucers un- unidentified flying objects up in the sky and of course now we have all these observation methods and we have live recordings of the sky at night all over the planet and so you know it's it's in and, and YouTube and so it's People pick this stuff up now uh, pretty regularly. And there's this big debate uh, in Congress right now that the United States is withholding information on possible alien contact, not only uh, on radios and stuff, but actually UFO landings here. And I don't know if you've read about the, uh, the cattle mutilations. That's especially prominent in the latter 1970s, and especially in the part of Utah I lived in. Let's all right, let's uh let's go to a let's go to a song. UFO contact, aliens, and cattle mutilations. Now that's a weird one. I guess it's something, you know, it's a large amount of cows or sheep that have not just been mutilated, like in an animal kill, but have had, like, surgically removed organs, either with a laser or uh, cutting tools by somebody that's professional. Now, the cattle mutilations, you know, on a large extent, you know, a lot of animals, not just one or two, go way back, you know, to the Middle Ages. I mean, this stuff's been going on and evidence that uh, cults and uh, witchcraft and other such things are connected to that. And I, I think we all kind of know that, that there's a connection there. Um, but there began to be a real phenomenon in the United States because some of these are in South America as well. And Mexico, especially. Uh, was in the 1970s. You know, I'm still pretty young then. Um, And I I think the Midwest was Nebraska and some of those surrounding states. Iowa, I I can't remember. We're we're involved in uh, these so-called cattle mutilations. And uh, sometimes there's like these weird um, helicopter... uh, Silent aircraft, uh, often flying saucer-like vehicles connected to the same sightings they find all the cattle dead. And, and so a large number of them died in the Midwest, I guess, in the early 1970s. I'm just going off the top of my head here. I probably should be a little more versed in reading it closer. Um and um, Colorado, uh, places that have lots of cattle. I, I don't think it went on the Midwest, or the East Coast as much, but especially in the Midwest and in the Western United States where, where these large open areas are. Um, and, uh, and professionals, you know, uh, um, doctors, surgeons, biologists, uh, FBI was involved in this because it got, it got so out of hand. Uh, Cache County, which I lived in Boxholder County, grew up in that county in northern Utah, but Cache County had some real bizarre stuff that happened in association with these that were connected to actual individuals dressed in black suits, uh, maybe metallic suits, and had these highly advanced aircraft. Uh, and they were connected to, and I, I guess the sheriff's department, or I don't remember who the sheriff was at that time in Cache County, was. Was connected and did investigations. The FBI got involved. So this, in Utah, this became a big thing. And then there was some ranchers. It's like, hey, look, I seen this stuff. I, I, I looked at my cattle. This is very unusual. This is you know because people are saying, well, it's animal killings and oh, wolves are involved, and there's hardly any wolves back in that time period in Utah. I'm lucky to find one. Uh, he's saying these are. This has been done by professionals. Uh, this is, and he he thought maybe the government was involved, and then this this whole this is an interesting time period, the 1970s, early 70s, because there's a lot of really strange things going on with the government. The government, uh, the United States government's involved in some strange things. Hoover's still around, you know, I guess, uh, and um, MK Ultra. I've talked about that, which is um, the CIA going in and assassinating and killing. People that were connected to top secret events—that's um, interesting. The MK Ultra thing, and uh, even had family members involved, possibly with that. But all this ties in when, in this paranoia with the government. The government doing secret things and secret projects, and experimenting on civilians and animals, and connections to bovine diseases. And but what caused the the real stink was—it's you know there was hundreds, not thousands of cattle that had their sex organs removed you know, that's weird I can see if there's a sort of a you know, a local community uh, coven witchcraft thing or some cult going out and getting a few cattle, well, this is hundreds if not thousands of cattle that the only thing that's removed are the sex organs they're taken out yeah. uh, and you, you can look this up and and often in in association with UFO, with, with disc landings and usually at night, uh, and then um, beings that have suits on or they're uh, some weird light source and they're walking around by the cattle and and it really got out of hand for a while and I think it still goes on periodically. I think just five or six years ago another instance happened. Um, and connection with this. I'm, I'm trying to think of about one of the first ones. And strangely enough, I was just a boy and I, and I was visiting my grandparents during this, this this time period in Alamosa. I would go there in the summers. And I think just after summer, after I left or when I was there, because I remember it being on the radio and my grandpa commenting on it. I can't remember listening on the car radio or the news, but it was on the radio. And they'd found, I don't remember the whole, they'd found this what made it bizarre is they found this uh, horse, the you know the family horse or ranch horse, and it's dead, laying there, and every the body's totally intact, except from the neck up to the head, there's surgical scars, and all that's left are the bones of the animal. And this animal was just alive a few days beforehand, and so there the skin and the tissue and the muscle have all been removed in a very strange way. And there's there's surgical cuts all over the body of the horse. And and so, you know, questions about why that's missing. Maybe the horse had showed up in The Godfather. <laughs> no, that one was completely cut. That's a really weird part of the movie.
2: <laughs> right.
1: No, and, and so... It, and then there was also aliens and, and flying saucers, a number of them, reported. This is in the San Luis Valley, where my family's been for several generations. And My uh, grandfather was a prominent engineer. And I remember where we were driving in this old car, which is new at the time, old now. Um, and, and we heard this broadcast, and it was pretty strange. So, And that, that was the first time I recall as a boy hearing about... Animal mutilations and then connected to flying saucers and aliens. You know, when you're listening to that stuff on a radio station and it's kind of coming in and going out, and you're getting the static and stuff, It's it even makes it more weird, especially for a little boy. And then it got really, really big. It was in the press a lot. Uh, there were a lot. I think they made a couple of movies. Uh, the History Channel has a documentary on this where they interview a lot of people. Um, pretty strange Stuff and it's still going on periodically, and the problem's never been solved. Of course, the government, like they do with you know with UFO, uh, the Blue Book project, denies anything weird. They're like, hey, look, we investigated this stuff, and nothing's odd. It's like there's there's all these um, very common sense reasons for stuff happening, but really, there's not. When you look into it, there's a lot of missing factors. And no one really solved the, the problem. And and you know, the government has to make sure everything's okay, you know. Hey, hey folks, don't don't panic, everything's cool. Yeah, looking into that and why why would that be going on and what's the connection? Why is it still going on? Why hasn't it been solved? On um, um is is this something that could happen to you when you're driving on some you know we have a lot of wide open spaces here go on for hundreds of miles and very lone desert highways and dirt roads you can be on i just talked about in the last episode one of the more um strange experiences i had uh, between dreams being awake and being asleep and driving so i mean oh, yeah it's just it's just interesting food for thought and and think and when you're looking up there in the sky and something happens and you see something unusual and now, you know, we see satellites and Starlink and all these, uh, interesting, um, things. And the, and the internet, you know, no news stays secret for very long with the internet and YouTube and sensationalized and made up and maybe it's true. Maybe, I think there's some recent stuff with, uh, flying saucer aliens in Mexico. Now, it really gets strange in Mexico, and it ties into Aztecan and Mayan and uh, indigenous history. When you go to visit a place uh, in South America, Central America, Europe, you know, aside from Hawaii and these places where there, are, there are, you know, these places in Europe that are a lot like we are, that doesn't really push your, uh, your view of reality. Um, but when you go into these more exotic places like Tibet and in Nepal, I just met a gentleman from Nepal when I went to uh, the local Indian cuisine restaurant here. And it was interesting to hear his ideas about reality, and, you know, the time between meals, and he was serving other tables. And his, his wife was from Mongolia, and he was interested in the Diné Navajo tribe, who have origins, some of their clans, at least, from, uh, from Asia. And uh, even uh, DNA-wise, there's a, there's a connection there. And so he's interested in going and uh, particip- participating in uh, uh, medicine ceremonies with the Dene and, and comparing them to his, uh, to his religion, the Buddhist religion, which is uh, strongly mixed with, with tribal affinities in Nepal. And then he, he's been to Tibet, too. And so it was interesting, in between uh, eating and him going to other tables, we talked a bit on and I, I really enjoyed that. But again, there was a little bit of a clash I could sense between my Western reality and his Eastern orientations. And he, I think he felt relieved when he's saying, oh, this guy has experienced other cultures. This guy's been to tribal formats. He kind of understands, you know, where, where I'm coming from. And so he seemed to relax a little bit. And during the two hours I was there, um, we, uh, we, we got to talk back and forth. Um... So, having said that, uh, they're, they're really... Science, I think, itself likes to say, and I think that's good, that we have this, uh, you know, they have the scientific matho- method and we can establish uh, at least a reality that's based in, in physicality and in, in Newtonian uh, law. You know, two plus two is four and uh, stuff like that. We, we, we can get a baseline there. But the problem with science is the scientists themselves. And they, too, work in the cultural... Uh, format, Uh, even though they don't like to say they do, and they're influenced by uh, donations money-wise, and corporations that send sometimes millions of dollars to do research, that corporation is giving you money. You want that research pointed pointed towards what that corporation wants you to do. Uh, As an editor, and I do a lot of documentaries, tribal documentaries with elders and other documentaries... A lot of times I have to change the way I edit according to how I'm being paid. And there may be something in the, in, in the, uh, the interview that I have with the tribal person or someone else that the, uh, the person that's paying me or the company paying me, they don't want that in there. They want that edited out. They want, they want to look good. This isn't always the case, but you're strongly influenced by donations and by money coming into paying you your job. So and that's I think a lot of times where the scientist is heavily influenced, uh, it, and, you know, by money, by uh, by the government you're in, by the pressures and by laws. Uh, it's really hard for scientists even to have legitimate results sometimes to be accepted if they're outside uh, outside the um, the research that's being done a lot of times and influenced by corporations and by governments. And uh, by people with a lot of money. And so it can be exclusionary, especially if stuff is very profound. And later on may be accepted as legitimate. Uh, so, um, yeah. So yesterday on, on the 12th of, of November, um, I, I, I read an article. Actually, I read it this morning really early. Sometimes, you know, I didn't do a radio broadcast. So I still got up uh, 4 o'clock this morning. And that's I like that hour because it's quiet. And if I'm not doing a broadcast, I can think and do writing, and, and even my my artwork. So I'm, I got on my uh, cell phone. I don't like the big screen, you know, on my computer. I have a big Mac screen that I edit on, but also do my radio broadcasts and look at can look at the internet and videos. I just have my little cell phone, and I noticed there was an article, November 12, thirty three, and it said something to the fact like. The sky filled with bright stars falling. Yeah, bright falling stars. I, I can't remember the exact headline, but it got my attention because I knew about this date and I knew about this phenomenon uh, because I, I'd read journals from that time period. Uh, the Mormon faith, uh, some of its leaders like Parley P. Pratt, Joseph Smith, um, commented on this day. There's this incredible phenomenon. And of course, if you're religious, religiously oriented, you're going, to, you're going to point the phenomenon to that. We're going to talk a little bit more about that. Basically, I think they said 150,000 pieces of meteor or asteroid fell an hour. Something like that. It was unusual. and We know now, in modern times, this is a linear meteor shower. How do you say that? <laughs> and I don't know if you've ever experienced that, and I'm sure a lot of you have. I have, uh, on one occasion back in the 1990s, it was just staggering. That was uh, staggering. Uh, my, my wife at the time and my daughter, we watched that out in the West Desert in Utah, and, it was, and there were a few other cars there. It's a pretty isolated place. You have clear skies. It was staggering. At, this is, you know, five times that amount in 1833. And, and tribes that were there, I think this is mostly a phenomenon that, at least when I've read, was in the Midwestern United States. I mean, it was the visual, the visual uh, clarity was, was pretty powerful there. And there were a lot of people that witnessed this. And so, um, yeah, it was uh, pretty strange stuff. Some some personal journal writing said the sky was on fire. This is in the middle of the night, with all these these bright swirling pieces of stars. You know, which we know now were, were, were meteors, uh, and, it, and just phenomenal. Right? And, and it went on for for uh, quite quite a while. So there's there's one way to explain that the scientific way, and then there's of course and we'll talk more about this. There's the way you experience that personally and how you filter that experience through your religion, through your philosophy, through um, the people you know and to the place you're at and what might be going on. One of the unusual uh, phenomenons uh, in quantum physics is the observation of the photon. Observation of these little micro worlds like atoms and protons and neutrons but especially photons when you observe what's going on in a situation in an experiment that observation is strongly affected by what you're doing at that time you can look at the you can look at something in the in the in the, in the quantum effect in, in some experiments and look away from it or change your thought and then look back and it's it's totally different and that's that's known that's that's in the equation that's the whole thing with the copenhagen uh, idea of the early quantum physics uh, that was a big problem and Schroeder come up with this cat and is it alive or dead in the box and and then later uh, Hugh Evert come up with the multi-worlds theory um, but, but one of the big problems in the Copenhagen uh, uh, idea was how observation can change with the observer and with what's going on in the room and that really there's there's not a vacuum there and even if there is it's still the, the, the outcome is totally changed by just looking at it or looking away from it so having said that other things affect the way you see f- uh, physical phenomenon uh, and that's really a big deal in, in the quantum world let me explain that in another way how our, our personal feelings, cultural mindset um, desires can open us up to um, not only making uh, an unusual event, more unusual, but actually opened the doorways to to uh, deeper potentialities. Um, I, I remember uh, that I had a group of friends. Uh, I didn't I didn't go with them, but they explained this to my uh, to me after they did it. They decided to go in the basement, and um, a, a one of their one of the, one of my friends' house. The parents were gone, and uh, they decided to go in the basement, and they were going to contact. Uh, an alien force. They are going to contact a, a deity. They wanted to have an otherworldly experience. And I think they even listened to uh, some heavy metal music like Uriah Heep. It's <laughs> a long time ago. Black Sabbath. Something that really did the setting. Made, made the setting for them. And, and, and then they were going to uh, vocally, verbally ask the, a deity to appear to them. And, and, and you know they're really serious about this stuff. They might even have burned incense. And I don't know if they directly asked somebody like something like Satan. That's you know. I don't think it was anything like that. I just wanted a deity or some otherworldly essence to visit them. And so they had this. They burned candles and incense, and there was like five or six of them. Um, I wasn't there, but this got explained to me after. And so they did this. For quite a while, and then they decided the only the only light they're going to have is candles. You know, setting is everything. And and then they said they what what happened was this this dim little light appeared, kind of a greenish, pinkish light, just out of nowhere. And it wasn't just one person that was seeing it, but all of them. And it, it kind of like pulsated, and it moved around, and it got bigger and smaller. And, and, and it would move on, on top of their head, in front of their face, uh, it would go up on the ceiling. And they said they could... And my, my friend, especially when explaining this fully, said you could see an afterglow on, on the basement wall. Because apparently this basement's pretty empty except for a few items that they would, their parents were storing there. And they, and they said it just got... And then it said it came with this really bizarre sound and this really weird feeling that made him really scared. And, it, it would, and this and this, this blob or this light would get larger and smaller, like it was breathing. And all these guys seen it, and, and I guess it got so bad and it got bigger and bigger and then smaller and smaller. It got so bad that finally one of my friends ran out of the basement. And then of course this got everybody else all panicked and they, cause they, I guess they knew where the door was at least. And the other other friends all ran out and that was the end of it. And then, at school or maybe even <laughs> at church, you know, we had some church function there at the Mormon, the local Mormon church. Uh, they told me the story outside of what had happened, and uh, all you know, all my friends are there, and they're all agreeing. I was the only one that wasn't there, and I was kind of glad I wasn't because they said it was really frightening. Okay, so so there's a situation where. Um, was it a group mass phenomenon? You know, was it an illusion? Or did they actually open the doorway and cause something, some other worldly essence to come in there? And I think it has a lot to do with, with your setup, with what how you feel about things. I mean, you can get really scared in the dark out in the middle of a forest if you're with somebody else that's really scared. You can start hearing things. And, you know, this is where the, um, the material and the non-material kind of like sort of get all mixed up. And, and, and besides everything we see is through you know our five senses. and if we can increase those senses we can increase uh, what we see in here. you know if we, if we increase those when you can see the quantum world, photons and protons and you know atoms and you can see uh, all that stuff, that's a whole different reality. That's, that you know, science knows is there, but a normal person can't really see it. Through mathematics and now through microscopes, you can see this really bizarre world that used to just be an idea that's now very real if you have the right setups.
2: Reflected in the eye of a dragonfly in a lunar pool. And we will sail away on oceans. And a haze of carillons and juniper spines from the great valley of humming gongs. On ships that sail away forever. Unexplained light reflected from the spine of a metallic viper. I'll see your radiant kiss, my lover. Strange rooms engulfed by a halo of alien architecture, like sun across my eyes forever. And a dark garden of dragonflies encased in sulfur. You'll see me standing there, my lover. Through a silent walk of flowered knife shadows freeze against the sky forever, then an unexplained kiss from a lethal angel, and we will sail away on oceans, reflected in the eye of a dragonfly in a lunar pool, on ships that sail away forever.
0: You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
1: Okay, so we, we started out talking about uh, flying saucers, uh, I guess. I After we go to song, I always kind of like uh, lost my place because I started doing other things with Murky, and she's kind of messing around. We're, we're actually playing a little bit of a card game here. <laughs> she doesn't want to be on the air lately. I don't know what the deal was, right, Murky? Right. Yeah. Hmm? No, no, your mic's off. Okay, so we're yeah, so we're, we're going to this game and having fun outside the radio show. And we go to a song. So we've been talking about uh, UFOs. We talked about g- uh, cattle mutilations that were connected to that in the '70s. Um, talked about how uh, uh, sky phenomenon, and I think that's how this all started out. Was this thing that happened in the on November twelfth, uh, eighteen thirty three. Um, uh, the sky phenomenon connected with. a... Uh, Linear meteor shower, but a a phenomenal uh, event that was the usual meteor shower times a thousand. So it was it was amazing. So another uh, unusual sky phenomenon event, probably more spectacular and a a bit different than something that was connected to fragments of a meteor, uh, like the uh, the uh, 1833. 1833 event, is this thing that happened in Nuremberg, Ger- Germany in 1561. One, I think April 14th. Anyway, the, the newspaper article, if you could call it that at the time, it had a woodcut or etching from this event that hundreds, if not thousands of people experienced in Nuremberg, Germany, when they saw this amazing sky phenomenon. Uh, and this isn't meteor fragments. This is first of all starts with the sun and they said this this sort of these two discs similar to uh the the last quarter of the moon and i haven't it's been a while since i read this merged over the sun and caused it to go blood red and then emitting from the sun itself were all these like metallic global balls rectangles uh fighting amongst themselves they said smoke coming out of them uh flying at tremendous speeds uh, and th- these are like uh, um, ge- geometric objects and they seem to be fighting amongst themselves and floating through the air and, and, and diving and arcing at each other and uh, they're all over the sky and when they and then they follow the ground and incinerate uh, and, and this goes on for quite a while and and, and it's this... It was run in the, in the newspaper at the time, in, in Switzerland, giving a, a personal accounts from the village of Nuremberg. And it was pretty pretty sensational. There's this really uh, famous woodcut that was done uh, illustrating w- what that looked like. And that that's something more akin to, like, UFOs. Unless a natural phenomenon, like pieces of a meteor and flashing flaming stars in the sky, this is more like some kind of a, a battle or ships or something orienting from the origins of this blood-red sun that's covered with these weird red phases, disks that go over the surface of the sun. I'll have to go back and read that, but that's, that's a really amazing uh, phenomenon. There's lots of other time, periods of time and, and events recorded like this, especially if you get with the local tribes here, Zuni, and in particular, Hopi, who have uh, flying saucers built into their mythology and their tribal history. And, man, do they have some powerful stories. (laughs) And I've talked about this before, uh, some of my Hopi friends. And, you know, you can't define Hopi by talking to one person, the the, the Hopi tribe. Hopi consists of of 12 villages. Uh, Most of those, uh, with the exception of uh, Munkapi are on these three beautiful mesas. Uh, about eighty-one miles um, east-northeast of Flagstaff, and they had been there for all oh, the uh at least two thousand years. On top of the Mesa, below that, they were they were there even before that. So it's the oldest continually inhabited town in the United States, e- even older than St. Augustine, because this is way before the Spanish came. The the Hopis are there. So. Built into their mythology and their history is this whole uh, concept. Some Hopis and some clans and some villages, not all Hopis, just some, believe that these great organic ships came to the planet Earth. from. I, I believe some say from the, uh, the position of Orion, these three powerful stars with Cirrus below them, they came from that origin. Thousands, millions. Hopi's time chron- chronological, uh, keeping chronologically keeping track of th- things is a little bit different than outsiders' uh, Western timekeeping. But uh, Hopi friends have said they think millions of years ago. Now Hopi's defined coming out of the Grand Canyon. That's where they from the from the previous Third World. And I've talked about this before. Um, tribe. Uh, in, in my way of explaining that, the, the other worlds or the other wombs, Zunis call it called a womb, I believe, these are, for me, historical time periods of, of other historical time periods, previous ones, or previous realities manifest of consciousness and living complete lives and realities. So, so the Hopis term this, the time period right now, is the fourth world. They came up from the third world out of the Grand Canyon. There's an actual place, and it's very strange and very beautiful, and I think off limits. You're not supposed to go there. There's this, uh, there's this vast, deep hole in the earth that water bubbles up out of. And it, I don't know if you know much about the Grand Canyon and the Flagstaff area in general, the volcanism here, uh, volcanoes and volcanic activity has been going on millions of years and still going on. Uh, nothing that the most recent volcanic eruption is um, Palasimo, um, Sunset Crater, which was a little over 800, 900 years ago. Uh, but uh, volcanologists know now that, it, that, that periodically the landscape here explodes. And you have these big volcanoes. We have over 600 of them in various time periods. Uh, and there's been some pretty cataclysmic events here in Flagstaff and the Grand Canyon. This stuff's even older than the Grand Canyon. So um, the Grand Canyon itself, uh, all this landscape, has thousands of passageways deep underneath the earth. These these tunnels, that these lava tubes. Uh, that go for hundreds, if not thousands, of miles. If you can, you know, connect them all up, and um, and you can explore some of these, and they're they're strange and bizarre. I talked about them uh, where I, I spent a lot of my uh, time out to Wapaki National Monument, where there's these incredible uh, uh, ancient Pueblo ruins that connect to different tribes that are very old, and some of them are very much intact. That have these immense, deep histories. So in the vicinity of, and even sometimes right by the Pueblos, these ancient dwellings are these vast, deep chambers and tunnels uh, that, that just go forever. And these huge wind vents like just rage out of these these open holes. And you can hear weird sounds from there too. And there's a whole a mythology and history of a people that live in there sometimes gets mixed up with this ancient Egyptian city that's supposed to be in the Grand Canyon? No. This is where the Zuni and Hopis come from. These are previous worlds, and these tunnels are connections and passageways to the other worlds and dimensions. So so these these passageways that go on for so far in these deep, deep holes, some of them thousands of feet deep, are connected to uh, the, the ancient Pueblo architecture and people that were there as well. And uh, this is, you know, this is a profound... History and uh, these, these are beautiful, if they're intact, these are beautiful uh, uh, structures. Not only in the Pueblo architecture, but in just being inhabited uh, uh, by um, different migrating clans and, and groups that have come there and lived, and then later built these beautiful um, Pueblos, which is kind of a facsimile of those. You can see when you go to, to um, Santa Fe, in New Mexico, this beautiful town. Uh, and you can see, uh, like, architecture there that was taken from the Pueblo people, and they built those here in the Flagstaff area, and uh, all all over the, for four and five hundred miles, all the way up into southern Utah, uh, into New Mexico. Uh, i even found some of these in the Salt Lake Valley, the Fremonts that are called there. Um, have connection to the Zuni and Hopi people, and they have uh, migrational clan histories of people living up there and building Pueblos, and they have found similar things. But it gets more incredible as you go go further south from Salt Lake and and get into uh, parts of Colorado, southern Colorado, western Colorado, uh, New Mexico. So so the, the ancestral Pueblo have been here for a very long time. And in this incredible place called Chaco Canyon, which was largely a ceremonial center, about 1200 AD, somewhere around that time period. So you have a place where there's priests, medicine people, you know, this, this is a higher upper, upper class used during religious ceremonies and uh, seasonal functions that, um, that serve different people. Uh, Clans and migrational bands and tribes would go to this place, and there would be a priest class apparently that that lived there, and, and so there there was a lot of people apparently because I think Pueblo Bonito there, which is amazing, uh, has 900 rooms, yeah, and there's some big kivas, which is the the place that uh, the ancestral pueblo go down and have a sacred place, uh, like a temple or a, or a church house that's in the ground And They have a lot of the really sacred part of their ceremonies down in the the kiva. And there's these immense kivas uh, at Chaco Canyon. And these huge roadways as well that go there. But a lot of the tribes, especially the Hopi and Zuni, depending on who you talk to, remember, you can't define these tribes just by one person that you know. Or even a few people, or especially books that you read. Like Frank Waters' book of the Hopi. Um, Some things in there are... Are good and some things are, are really off. So when you when you talk to over the years a lot of different Hopi's and Zuni people, you and and uh, other Pueblo people in the Rio Grande and uh, Dine people, Navajo people, you get this view of Chaco Canyon that it was an immense ceremonial center uh, with medicine people, with sorcerers. Uh, Witches, both good and bad, and people that divinated and read the future, which is a really important part of the Mesoamerican complex When you read the uh, pre-Columbian codices, which are amazing pictorial uh, histories And divination devices that are multi-dimensional That work uh, in these very deep religious ceremonies But also, uh, at the birth of someone, and at certain times in their life, their birthday they would go see these medicine people and priests, and they would read these. They'd fold out these, these amazing, color-filled, uh, deity-filled, multi-dimensional uh, books called the codices, pre-Columbian, meaning before Columbus came, they, and they weren't influenced by the Spanish conquistadores that came. In fact, a lot of people now feel that a lot of book writing and uh, early books uh, you know, with the Gutenberg uh, press, early on were influenced by the codices that when the, the, the Spanish took to the old, took back to the old world with them. In fact, a lot of the, the remain, a lot of the really famous remaining codices can be found uh, at the Vatican and uh, different places in the old world that were taken clear from the new world, and now being studied by intellectuals and scholars and indigenous and tribal people alike. These uh, most of these were destroyed, which is just—I can't. I, it's hard to explain what a tragedy that was because the histories and uh, the view of reality and the tribal, uh, the inner sanctum of of the Aztecan of the Mayan of the mixtecan of all these tribes in Mexico. A lot of it was recorded there anciently on these these uh, manuscripts, the, the codices. So these are multi-dimensional books that are seen as being alive, much like the uh, the uh, ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, which I studied in school and, and, and could read. I don't have to, I'm not too good at it now. could could read them to some degree. Um, so the ancient Egyptians considered hieroglyphs not just written, not an early writing, uh, an early way of, of describing things, but the hieroglyphs are, are living. They're alive. They're considered uh, they're considered breathing and living. And so this is a lot how tribal people see writing. It isn't just uh, words that describe something or ideas, but it's actually a doorway into to uh, a reality. Realities. And this is the codices. And so they're probably, at some point, I wouldn't be surprised if they discover some of this stuff in Chaco Canyon, although that's largely excavated. But uh, there are stories and legends and mythologies and actually, clan histories that connect Chaco Canyon to the great solar astronomy place—that was connected to all these complex ceremonies. You can spend five to six lifetimes and still, as an outsider, not understand the complexities of the ceremonial complex here in just the Southwest. This isn't. This is leaving out Mexico and leaving out Central America and South America, where the complexities are as is as, as extreme. And, and as uh, taking lifetimes to understand the complexities of these ceremonies and societies and clans and how they're performed. So Chaco Canyon was that kind of a place. where these priests and these uh, divinators and these uh, philosophers lived and you went there and visited and you did these and whatever, you know, these important ceremonies that were connected to the tribes and to the clans, uh, to the... Zuni, Hopi, to all the 18 or 19 uh, Pueblos on the Rio Grande, and to some degree, it looks like probably even the Diné or Navajo people were connected to Chaco Canyon. There's a great, outside of the white world and archaeologists, there is a real taboo with Chaco Canyon. Uh, It's considered a place that's connected to alternate realities, that's connected to time travel, that's connected to flying saucers and UFOs and to alien contact. Yeah. So if you get a good tribal religious person, that's traditional, they don't you're not going to find them interested in visiting Chaco Canyon or talking about it, and they understand a lot of things we don't because it's in their their thousands of years of history they understand a lot of the things that they don't publish or talk about except in the Kivas or in secret in these societies that you need to belong to. Uh, So Chaco Canyon does apparently have connections to aliens and flying saucer contact Uh, I have many friends in almost all the (laughs) tribes that have had alien abductions, that have had seen flying saucers. These are honest people that have had contact with these alternate realities. When you say aliens, they don't use that word. Uh, it's more seen as deities or, or spirits or, or living life forces from these other realms. And, and of course, they live in a multiplicity of realities, not just one like 9 to 5 like we live in. Uh, but it's, it's a very complex system. So, having said all that, <laughs> going back to this, this trip in the Uintas with, um, with my scout troop, Scout Troop 516 from Corinne, Utah, this little small farming community on the edge of the uh, West Desert, which is expansive and goes for hundreds of miles, just complete isolation. On the other side, is Brigham City, and you're up against, you know, which is founded by the Mormons. You have this wild, crazy place that Corinne used to be, this railroad town. Uh, was had the most people in at one time in Utah. Anyway, I'm, it became littler in this farming community, and, and that's that's where I'm from. So, our, our scout troop would annually make these incredible uh, wilderness trips into this lake filled high Uintas. So high Uintas is an amazing alpine area with all these lakes. It rains there all summer long and it has a close, close to a temperate rainforest in some parts of the uh, Uintas. I haven't been there in 40 years, so I'm sure it's changed a lot. But still, it's this beautiful lake filled high alpine area that can be. St- and I'm sure still is, incredibly isolated. And we'd spend a week up there during uh, the thunderstorm season, fishing and exploring this, this this wilderness. It was and still is a wilderness, I'm sure. On one of these days, we were high up uh, on a mountain walking. I think it was like one or two o'clock, you know, early high school, freshmen or sophomores in high school, some junior high age, and we we see this bright, I mean, it was, it was as bright as the sun, this, this flare that went across the sky. You can look this up, because <laughs> we weren't the only ones seeing this. So uh, thousands of people did. And it's a flaming asteroid, or a flaming piece of the meteor, it looks like. But what we seen, and you could see the clarity so well, is it seemed to be a metallic object not a rock but it seemed to be a flaming metallic object that shot across the sky could have been a satellite i i don't know but it was clear enough that it scared us and we just looked at it just stunned and and we could watch it for i don't know a minute maybe even two minutes it was invisible range so um that was strange and maybe that's as close as i've come to um Seeing uh, maybe a, a flying saucer. and A bunch of us seeing that. Now, I have a close friend, and he was with the scout troop. I'm not going to mention his name because he wouldn't want me to, but he's a close family friend. And if he's listening to this broadcast, <laughs> he'll verify this is true. I think it's in the honorandax in New York. That uh, He's from New Jersey. That his scout troop went uh, uh, up there and spent, I don't know, a week during the summertime. And they, now listen to this. And this, you know, this friend of mine, he's, he's a very rational person. He's not really into like too much into visions and dreams. And uh, he's pretty scientific, uh, rational, um, nine to five guy. And he said that they seen this bright object. They, they were, I think they were sleeping in their sleeping bags uh, outside the tents. somewhere in the tents. And, and, and one of the scouts seen this bright object in this big meadow. There was a lake there. And he woke the other ones that were awake because I think there were two or three people with him. And he said, look at this. And, and and they came out, you know, this is like one or two in the morning, they're rubbing their eyes, what? And it's so bright, you can see the reflection of, of the brightness of this object in the sky reflecting off the tents, reflecting off the glasses of some of the uh, scouts that were there. And they're just stunned because they watch as this metallic object, listen to this, it lands in this field. And and he said, how, how large? He said it was... um four or five feet wide, so it's not big. And he said, um, it just landed there, and they could see the glow of it, It had little windows in it. And this is, and I guess the place they were at, and is in upstate New York, is really isolated. Because you know the mountain ranges are big there. The Appalachians and other mountain ranges are a lot like here in the Southwest, where you can just walk for days and not see anybody, even, even today. They're in a very isolated area. I think he said they were 50, 60 miles from the closest little town. So, this, this metallic object, round disc, lands. It has windows. And, of course, they're just stunned. They're like, what is this? And they want to see, well, is this, uh, this is before remote control. Is, is this like a, some kind of a trick or what is it? So, of course, the scouts... Put on their coats because it was kind of cold and and they walk out in this field and, and cautiously approach this object and 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 my friend said you know i think he's 15 or 16 he said it definitely didn't get too close because he said it was hot very warm and 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 it was vibrating and making a weird utterly world noise and 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 they and one of them's like well should we get closer and so he gets a little closer, but he said it was real hot or warm. And then, and then you could hear the humming uh, sound of the engine or whatever was in there, or whatever the magnetic properties. And, and he said it was started changing color. Now, there, there, there's like 20 scouts and a scout leader watching this, and they're just stunned. And he said it, it lifted up off of the ground and hovered above them. And, 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 he, and he said it's something like he'd never, none of them had ever seen before. He said, we you know you watch science fiction movies and you see the traditional spacecraft or you know, in those 1951s it's a missile, a silver missile rocket thing. He said this was unlike anything he'd ever seen before, any of them had ever seen before. And then it proceeded to fly all over the place. And some of them actually started chasing it. And it would, like, move around, and then it would land and go back up and then go over their heads. And this went on for, I think he said, 25 minutes. And then he said suddenly the object, after they'd been chasing it, it, had been landing and then taking off and hovering and making these weird sounds, it just shot off in the sky and disappeared. I mean, he said at the speed of light. He said it was gone so quick that it just freaked him out. And, and, of course, they went back and tried to tell people about this. Maybe even one of them put it in a n- local newspaper. And, of course, you know, this is during a time when UFOs are a little more uh, less scientifically analyzed. And But it didn't get too far because people were really skeptical, you know, some story that the scouts made. Up. Okay, so there's two stories. Uh, one was in a scout troop I was in in the uintas, and the other one is in high upstate uh new york um and in in the mountainous woods high mountains up there and uh both of these stories happened in the early 19 1970s okay let's uh let's go to a song great time for a song <laughs> okay we'll be back in after this after this uh Bizarre commercial, uh, not, not a real, uh, an old commercial, and, and then uh, a song. Okay.
3: The Baltimore Gas and Electric Company. Gas. Electricity. All the energy you want. All the service you need. Fuel Power The Baltimore Gas and Electric Company
2: Connects you with carefree living
0: You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
1: Okay, so we've been talking about um, flying saucers and UFOs in the past, you know, a little history with the tribes, a couple of scout troops, uh, one of them that I was in that seen a a UFO, a flying saucer. You know, there's a lot of movies and a lot of... uh, phenomenon uh that's been recorded by some pretty uh pretty well-known people that have good reputations that are rational uh, and 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 then there's you know the the normal everyday people maybe we should be more impressed and worried about those ones because these are normal people with pretty normal lives writers uh nine to five working people um have a you know, normal life, and then suddenly something huge happens, a UFO abduction. Uh, they see a flying saucer, and it completely, in a lot of ways, ruins their entire life, and it makes them into a public spectacle, if they mention it. And a lot of people haven't mentioned it, uh, and just keep it to themselves. And I've talked to some of those people that don't share things publicly. They just don't want to be ridiculed. So why would they even tell you something like that? One of those is my own mother who kept her experiences to herself and only shared them with a few people. She had a radical UFO abduction and encounter. She didn't like sharing it or even talking about it. So uh, uh, Barney and Betty Hill in the early 1960s, very normal couple as far as I uh, can see and, and the history points out, In fact, uh, well-loved community figures, um, you know, just, but they're pretty normal, nice jobs, uh, happily married couple, Um, they're driving home one night, was it from a vacation, I can't remember, was it somewhere in maybe upstate New York, I don't remember the particulars, and this horrendous uh, UFO incident happens, this abduction, and it's it's well-recorded and documented. I mean, why would people with good reputations, professional, um, good, all-around, healthy, mentally fit people want to bring bring up an alien abduction that happened on, on their way back home one night in the middle of nowhere? And, and it just messed their entire lives up. They were never the same, and neither one of them would ever um, go back on on their uh their experience and they were interviewed separately after this happened initially and their stories are almost totally alike um and with you know being um really looked at critically by the, the people interviewing him psychologists and other people you know trying to say well is this stuff fake are they making this up and it turns out you know something really something really powerful happened physically and and mentally and psychologically happened to both these people uh husband and wife and so that's that's and there's, other, there's been shows, there's a, some famous cases here in Arizona beyond the tribal influence. I mean, one of the things you recognize, putting aside the actual event itself, uh, not being expected and just totally wrecking your life, is is it's maybe an escape mechanism to get out of this... Cemented nine to five reality, where we think things have to be a certain way. You have to pay your bills, you have to go to work. You you have all these things you need to do. You got to pay your taxes. You got to listen to the president. You got to. There's all these things you ha- you have to do every day of your life, and and, you, and there's so many things you don't get to to enjoy. And so you're looking for some kind of an escape, isn't it? This is one of the secondary reasons. This is not putting aside the actual radical event of a UFO abduction or something like that. But, but, we, but we desire or need something that will open us up to, to freedom, to give us a view of something else that's out there beyond this cemented, you know, in parenthesis, the American dream reality. So we look for something or, or we desire something inside to open us up to, to other possibilities you get that one vacation a year maybe a couple of days you're just you're just burdened down with this reality of just surviving and having an occasional uh, vacation having christmas getting a few presents you know loving the kids uh, talking about things and stories you know we don't have a lot of time a lot of our time is spent until you retire if you can retire which is kind of hard now just Trying to make a baseline of survival, getting food and groceries, and you have a house and you have insurance if you can afford that. Most of our life is spent doing that, and, and it's kind of a hard core set reality. I mean, it's, it's kind of you don't have much choice. You don't have time to spend thinking about other realities, thinking about the possibility uh, outside of that reality. You want to break. You want something to break it up. I've talked about this, you know, a big thunderstorm or a big earthquake, you know, nobody wants anybody to get killed, but you want something that'll break the machine down. You know, and COVID did that for a while. COVID gave us this insight, because there's a lot of restrictions, gave us this insight into like the machine breaks. It, it doesn't work very well. And you're in isolation. And, and uh, you know, and then if you've been in a war, which I have, and if you've been in that situation, it's uh, that rips reality apart. And you have to have a real strong baseline to keep your common sense, especially in a war environment, especially in something that's um, that breaks apart the reality, like a revolution or something. And when you're in a situation like that, or a horrible car accident, uh, or you have a, a, a dream that just like is so real that it just freaks you out um outside of those things you're, you're going to live in this nine to five reality and you're never going to get out of it you know the black iron prison that philip k dick always talks about no matter what time period no matter what where you go back to you're stuck in that reality you know you're zeitgeist the things that happen in that time period that's you're not going to get out of that that's how you're going to think that's how you're going to react and people may look back on that and see it as a laughable situation. You know, 30, 40, 100, 200 years later are ridiculous. But that's because they're not in it. And they'll have their event and they'll have their tragedies. And they'll have the thing that might break the reality apart. But largely, you're stuck in your time period. And and, and so all of us look forward to a novel or a movie or something that will break us out of this this set, hardcore reality that we're, we're faced with. Well, the so-called religious event, that's what we call it now in modern times, but the so-called ceremonial event, and, you know, ceremonies uh, with, with humans is tens of thousands of years old, cave walls in, in Spain and South Africa, and the ritual ceremonial event is, is very old, and even back in those days, they had the, you know, anciently um, they had the the sort of mundane baseline reality. I don't like that word mundane, but sort of the things you got to do to survive. And and you get so preoccupied with that that you forget that there's other potentialities. There's other realities. That that there's a huge, broad universe. Out there, and you get so focused on, on the hunting and on keeping up your, your home and your village and, and giving the food and taking care of the children and defending the village. You know, if other invading tribes or clans come, and you know, we're talking anciently here. Um, even back then, there was a need for ritual and ceremony to break up the daily event and, and open the doorways to the other realities. To let you know that you're an eternal being, that you're connected to something beyond this life into these other realms and these other realities. That reality is extremely complex, that it's way beyond your time period and it's way beyond what you think you always need to do. and Maybe what you need to do is take this ceremonial time, this religious experience, and open open you up so you go inward inside of yourself, which is, which is that, that world that dreams come from, that visions come from, that beautiful art comes from, that beautiful stories and narratives and mythologies. And even science itself is born from that, that realm that's deep inside of you, that our ideas and our imagination create reality, that make physical objects, that underneath the Newtonian, the nine to five reality, is this chaotic, bizarre, strange realm of the quantum. And I talk about that often, where you just, things are fuzzy, where logic doesn't quite work the way it should be, where photon can be in two different places at the same time, thousands of miles apart, that just looking at something can change the entire reality. And so that's that's the ritual event, the ceremony after thousands of years of understanding and trial and error, they, these people know what to do to break up your the mundane, to break up the 9 to 5 to open you up to your more eternal nature, your more mystical nature that goes beyond logic and rationality and opens you up to this deeper World, so whatever gets you through the night, get get you through the tough times, uh, and and what will be a drug, sex, a good TV show or a movie, or will be something a lot more radical than that? That in fact, it's not going to get you through the night. It's going to absolutely turn your life around, and either it's going to help you a lot, or it's just going to mess you up permanently. But hopefully it's something that's gonna help you. It's gonna open you up to this whole other possibility in realm of thinking. But what does it take to do that? So you took whatever you needed to take to get you through the night. (laughs) And you wake up and you still have your problem. You still have your addiction. You still have your wound. You still have your anger. You know, you you had a nice sleep and, and you have a cup of coffee, but all the old stuff comes back. And it didn't work, you know. It got you through the night, but you, you woke up and it's daytime again. You're you're back in the black iron prison. <laughs> so, does it take a, a UFO uh, landing and aliens to get out and abduct you, or, or or does that happen and it makes you worse? It just fucks up things worse. Excuse me. <laughs> does it take a bomb blowing up? Does it take? someone you love to get killed or someone to die or become terminally ill uh, what is it you know what what kind of slap in the face will take you to say this is not all there is or or, or, or you're dead and you look back and go you know that's over now now I have got the rest of eternity to, to deal with what what happened to my zeitgeist what happened to my time period or do you get stuck and you can't get out of the time period? You are a, a zeitgeist, a ghost in time, forever drifting in the same time over and over. You're in Bardo hell. You think you're—you uh, think this is reality. All you're doing is living and dying and repeating the same reality over and over and over because you don't want to move on. So you're stuck. You're a ghost. That's the, that's the worst kind of zeitgeist. That what does it take to wake you up? And I, and I think maybe a pinnacle event does that a religious experience sometimes going to a war you know I've talked about this in, in several broadcasts uh, waking up uh, do you do you meditate or do you uh, do you go to the Zendo and practice a uh, Renzai Zen um, do you sing church hymns is it just a simple everyday thing you struggle through and there's something to be said about that it's just heroic that you try to to, to help your fellow employees, your neighbors. You just try to make a difference every day in something simple. And there's something important to be said about that. I'm not saying that's wrong, but when you're really stuck and, and you're not happy and you're just doing the same stuff over and over, it's just habitual. And you do it because it's a habit and that's how you were taught to do it and that's what everybody else did. And I think that's what happened to me. At one point I came home from the war was suddenly... Everything that had worked before didn't work anymore, and it was was terrifying to me. I had to find something else, and and sometimes it takes a while to wake up to that something else, but you sense it, and this is one of the functions of ancient and and, and tribal ceremony and and, and ritual is is to break up. The mundane to break up what you think is everyday reality and to open you up to this broader, deeper, uh, otherworldly experience. Uh, and and involves some, sometimes a hallucinogenic will do that, or sometimes a powerful movie or a powerful speaker, a uh, book will open you up to the, this realm, this possibility. Some people think it's just the steps to success. Ten times, do ten times what you want. Ten times more than what you actually want. Make make it your goal. You know, I mean, I, I think it can take, it's different for everybody probably. It may be the same for a lot of people. Um, I think one event can radically change you for the rest of your life if it's powerful enough. Or maybe it's a little day-by-day thing. I, I don't know. I, but I think it's for me, it's something that has to happen all the time. You, you, you get off, you get out of balance, you get out of whack. And, you know, that's what the ceremonial cycle's about, the ritual's about in, in these tribal situations. As you, as you, as you come around, this, the season comes around. Like right now is the autumn. It's the, it's the season where the sun, you get less sunlight. And so symbolically, the, the sun, he goes into his death house. Uh, the world that you become more aware of, of night, of, of longer darkness, the death world comes into focus. And, and you start to remember that you can die, that you're fragile, that it's going to be a difficult time in the winter, you know, uh, traditional-wise. Uh, and so you have these ceremonies that are built into the seasonal system because, you know, people tend to get more depressed and there's less light or when your habitual reality is so cemented, nothing can happen. So the, the ceremonial system, uh, the ritual system is built into... Break you down to open you up to to something else that's that's broader than your than your circumstance. Uh, the Carl Jung, who was a famous depth psychologist, a student of of uh, Sigmund Freud. This whole, uh, if you don't understand depth psychology, it deals with the internal uh, psychology of a person, with our with uh, unconscious preoccupations that we that there's a part of us we don't fully understand, a primitive part of our our psychology in our in our physical body that that's connected to the distant past, that's connected to to um, to animals, that's connected to forest, that's connected to weather phenomena. Uh, depth psychology is a whole branch of, of earlier psychology, you know, and Freud is very important. He's the guy that started the whole psychological process. When you you know, with post traumatic stress disorder, What's the things that you that you that are underneath the surface? Like if you've been in a war, a horrible accident, or somebody's been murdered in front of you, or if you've been raped, what things are suppressed inside of you? And and that's that's the birth of this un, the unconscious. When you said and you talk freely, free association that, that Freud talked about, uh, and then Hume broke away from him because he felt uh, Freud was too preoccupied with sexuality. And Jung felt there was a deeper part of man, a more ancient part of man, that connected to, to, the, to the ancient, that connected to animals, that connected to, to the primitive, that connected to these primal energies that we have underneath the surface. And he named those archetypes. Uh, a very interesting person. I don't agree with everything Carl Jung did, but I, I have studied his writings in depth, read almost every single thing, and some of it is just ridiculously Sophisticated, and, and I, uh, he has a whole r- reality in depth psychology. jungian people go to school and study Jung and become Jungian qualified to to be able to talk and think in this kind of. It's 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 almost a religion to some people, which I think Carl Jung himself would have resented, because the whole thing with Jung was to bring together the opposites inside of you to find balance and harmony not always avoid the darker parts of yourself the more uncomfortable parts of yourself but to access them with someone that's trained that can help you and to heal and to begin to come into balance but Jung said that this 1561 event of all this sky phenomenon of all these metal objects and and uh, uh, spears floating in the sky thousands of them in this event with the sun turning blood red and thousands of people witnessing these things moving and buzzing all over the heavens. Jung said there was the physical phenomenon that people seen with their eyes, and then there was the part that they experienced within themselves that was connected to not only their genetic structure but their cultural structure. And then this deeper desire to break out of the mundane and to open themselves up to a deeper more substantial reality underneath the surface of of your zeitgeist, underneath the surface of your historical time period that you're, you're stuck in, underneath your job, underneath uh, paying your bills, underneath working in the fields, underneath death and tragedy. So there's the physical manifestation of something and then there's how you interpret it as an individual. And if the need is strong enough in a society, in a, in a culture where, they're so, where you become suppressed, so suppressed as the Germans were in World War I after all these, a million soldiers died, mostly 19 or younger, this horrible event of World War I in Germany, uh, this complete collapse of German society because the debt of World War I was placed on top of the Germans. They were responsible, and they were going to pay off all the destruction of World War I. So it's, they couldn't do it. And so things start falling apart, and then this allowed, that allows these regimes to come in, like the Nazis. You know, Hitler was, had post-traumatic stress disorder. He was a awarded combat veteran. He was messed up in the head. The Hitler that went to the war and the Hitler that come home were are totally different people, and anyone that's been to war knows what that means. I believe he was mentally ill, that he was psychotically damaged. And so starts this whole other thing, that, that this vacuum of tragedy, this vacuum of being disple- displeased and not having enough to eat because there's this horrible depression in Germany. like Nothing like we had in the United States back during the Depression. They couldn't eat, uh, there wasn't jobs. Money was worthless um, people looked for something else and so you grab onto whatever it is even if it's ex- extreme and so this kind of regime the Nazis rose up and we all know that story and, and allowed this this very dark element to take over Russia and to take over other places. So a, a powerful uh, physical event can and can, can bring about severe change both physically and uh, psychologically uh, both individually and and collective and there can be a vacuum created that allows these powerful regimes allows these tremendous changes to take place that are that are really dark and really catastrophic and uh, depending on what side you're on depending where you're at like what's going on in gaza what's going on in israel who's right who's wrong well it depends on where you're at it depends on your affinity it depends on what's happening to you uh, and so the news and the baseline of truth can change completely depending on your position, but uh, or depending on your experience directly, and and so uh, a lot of these a lot of these things that that happen uh, can either create a really dark situation or can create this kind of freedom within you this 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 desire to change and, and never even in the really dark things there can be a lot of change. I mean, look what's happened after World War II. If, you know good things and bad things seems like we're right back to where we started at the end of world war ii you know it's the it's east and west against each other again and especially right now everybody's just it's it's just radically uh there's this polarization between how you feel between the east and the west nato non-nato and it's just getting more extreme so it makes you wonder if we really have resolved anything i guess we're going to find out aren't we so the the change can be catastrophic Uh, in a really dark way or a light way, but it, it does bring about change.
0: You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
1: Jung said that either this happens collectively or individually, that when you see the UFO, or when you have this experience, that um, there's something else inside of you that colors it, that that gives it meaning, and gives it uh, emotion, and gives it spiritual connection. Carl Jung felt, felt powerfully. If you, want to, if you want to, I mean, you can read everything he wrote, which is thousands of pages and are extremely complex, and he has his own sort of language and his own thought system, the archetypical world, uh, the personal and collective. Um, it's, it's a bit much. But if you want to, to me, sum up Carl Jung uh, in the transcendental function, which is bringing these polar opposites together inside of yourself. That all the problems outside in the world, mostly that you can't control, uh, are a mirror of what's inside of you. That you collect, that you as an individual, the one thing you can change is yourself and bring all these opposites inside of you, all this conflict, all this sadness, All this happiness, all this goodness, you can bring that together and bring it into balance and become a healed individual, become a healthy individual that can contribute to society, to a better world, to to a world where there's less war, where there's less damage, where there's more healing, where there's a beautiful, bright sun shining. That's actually one of his archetypes, uh, and that's part of the transcendental function. Is inside of you have all these personality types. Anybody that writes a book or a movie or is an artist Shakespeare, all the world's a stage you birth the world alone if you're on an island you could birth all that out of just who you are as an individual and what Jung felt was really necessary uh, is bringing all these things into balance so your experience in life is worthwhile, that you have something important you're supposed to do whatever it is that you feel important that you feel loved and if you're not loved that you can find the answers to a lot of those questions inside of yourself and deeper than that as a creator as a, as a deity as an angel as a helper that is connected to you to your to this to this dark night of the soul he caught called it that awakens us to a deeper sense of reality and connection to 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 our family, to our community. So that that's Jung to me. But he, uh, what I love most about Jung is he, he's he's very tribal. He actually came to the Southwest and visited Taos Pueblo. He went to tribal Africa. He's very connected to the older human being, to the to getting outside of modern society and all the restrictions and rules and laws and governments and there, he said there's a deeper more eternal part of you and and to he loved connecting divisions to, to dreams to art to to the, these beautiful gifts that you're born with whoever you are and even your personal pain even the wounds you have have something important to tell you you know it's like that thing that socrates was asked at the end of his life that his friends asked him well if if the ideal world if heaven the 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 place of forms, is so perfect and so beautiful, then why don't we kill ourselves and and with you? When you drink the hemlock today and die, we'll die with you and go to the other world. We don't have to worry about all all the crap that we have to deal with in this life. And Socrates says, no. This experience you have in your body, this experience you have with your life is extremely valuable. It's a learning tool. It's, it's a way to, to, be, to become beautiful, to see what you really are. It's a test or it's, it's, a, it's a work. And so that's kind of what Jung's saying, is this experience we're having, no matter who you are, is extremely important. And that we shouldn't disvalue the body. We shouldn't disvalue the myth or the story or the dream or even the drastic experience of war but to avoid these huge collective phenomenons of violence, of revolution. He said, the word you turn to is not to the government, not to the president, not to not to the military, but you turn and look inside of yourself and see, look in the mirror and say, what problems do I need to solve as an individual? What can I do better? What can I accept about myself? What is this hurt? What is this pain I have? How can I... How can I heal? And he said the answers are there. They've been there for thousands and thousands of years. And one of those key ways is the ritual, the tribal ritual event or the ceremony that awakens you up to this deeper connection to what you are, that you're connected to trees, you're connected to beautiful animals, you're connected to stars, you're connected to each other, that we're not just isolated in our human being, in our our zeitgeist, in our time period. But that we're more eternal, we're, and 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 I think, I think when we have these events, and I don't want to explain away the mystery because I think it's important. You don't, because there's just stuff that's way beyond our mind, way beyond our rationality, that cannot be this phenomenon that cannot be explained fully. I think that's important, extremely important. So I'm not explaining that away. I'm just giving you reasons that that these things happen possibly and so um yeah it's food for thought so is it just is it a flying saucer up there in the sky actually maybe or is it is it a manifestation from inside of you that you need to realize that there's more than just your job there's more than just the government there's more than just this war going on there's more than paying the bills that and that's what Jung says in this book Titled "Flying Saucers," I was writ, t- written towards the end of his life. Is that these these phenomenons, these physical phenomenons, are connected to our desire to heal, our desire to be whole? That the flying saucer is the whole, is the self archetype of of a totally healed and balanced person. And that beyond that, and he's not saying it's real or not real, but he's saying it's real in terms of this deep experience you have. And, and I don't know if you've had these kind of experiences, and I often in my broadcast try to explain them. When you're in that reality, the multiplicity of realities, it's it's almost impossible to explain. It's just it's it's so powerful and 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 shatters everything around you and becomes so spiritual or I lack of better so Emotional and so radiant that you can't really explain it unless you've had that same experience.
0: You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley. You're listening to Late Nights, on In Between Stations Radio, broadcasting from Flagstaff, Arizona, with host David Hartley.
2: Not on
3: earth. No shit, baby. I can dig it. I can dig it.
1: Welcome back to In Between Stations Radio as we get towards the end of our broadcast, at least in the podcast format. We'll keep going live, as we always do, and go on to uh, some more interesting things to deal with uh, UFOs and flying saucers. I've done a a few previous broadcasts. Now, I have some strange... I and Murky started doing some... Right, Murky? (laughs) You going to talk? Maybe. Yeah? (laughs) Right. And so we we've done some strange broadcast early on we have fun with that are kind of experimental and if you listen to them you're like wow that's weird what's going on there it's just to kind of you know to throw a curveball there so if you're if you're always listening to our broadcast we have little plays and shows and um that aren't always just a radio program just to kind of break up the monotony and be creative so there's a lot of different kinds of broadcasts out there, and we evolve and change over time. If you go back two or three years, it's going to be a little political or a little too personal, and um, and so we've, I think in the last year or so we've really evolved into uh, a better uh, broadcast format on our live radio station here. And so, and, but we do have little fun things that you can plug into, and if, if they're not interesting, then go on to something else. We set up these broadcasts. We do have a listening audience now of a couple hundred people or more. Sometimes it gets to be even quite a bit more than that or even less. Uh, and so we, we try to gear it towards them. But my thing is, and I think Murky says this all the time too, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, she's only going to do yes and no's, I guess. Um, so um, it's it's something that you can just tune in periodically. If you want to listen every every night, uh, we were going every night. It's kind of hard to do that now, in the winter time. Uh, then, the, I, the thing I think it's the way we set it up is it's just occasionally listen. How long can you listen to me talk? You know, how long can you turn on the the radio broadcast if it's one person? And we don't we generally don't have guests. We we've had a, a few in the past. Uh, so and we just. A lot of people are getting very personal now and don't want to express their opinions live on the air. A lot of my friends are extremely personal.
3: She was swell.
1: So uh, I think we, we've covered, um, we looked at flying saucers, which I've done in a, a couple of other broadcasts. Uh, What they could be, uh, a couple of experiences that are kind of close to flying saucers, some uh, collective phenomenal events that happened, one in 1561, one in 1833, uh, sky phenomenon, and how how you view these in terms of uh, your cultural context, your religious context, uh, your personal context. We talked about that. We we talked about... uh, can these things be life changing events or can they make your life worse? And, and how physically real and how internally real are they? Which we, I think, we kind of cross the lines a lot with that. When you watch shows, when you make love to somebody, when you have a good friend, when somebody dies uh, or they're sick, you have these experiences that are mixed not only with the physical realism, but they're mixed with internal uh, emotions and, and, and creativity. And how do you deal with them? in, in, in a religious context, what's your religion or no religion? So, yeah, and I think ritual. We talked about ritual and, and tribal ceremony. That's tens of thousands of years old. That it's cyclical. That it works through the seasons. That it, it, it and it comes into opening your mind up, opening your soul up, opening the internal part of you up, so you can so you can be a better person. So you can grow and learn. So you can overcome these difficulties that into your life, both personally and collectively. I think uh, those events are, are important, whether it's a flying saucer, or you have a vision in the desert, or it's just a friend patting you on the back and, and telling you that they love you. Um, whatever it takes to, to get you to, um, to open yourself up to a larger universe. That's just how it is on this planet. Okay, that's, a, that's an earful. <laughs> uh, I love you. Uh, Thank you for listening. Uh, So anyway, this is In Between Stations Radio signing off with a song uh, on 3731 kilohertz in the 80 meter band. Uh, And we'll see you soon, especially with the holidays coming. We have a whole new uh, holiday show set up, right, Murky? All right. Do you want to say anything, Murky, before we close? Yeah. You you do? (laughs) Maybe. All right. Okay, we'll see you. This is In Between Stations, signing off the air after Murky has a word with us. See you.
0: We love you, and good night.
1: (laughs) Okay, Murky.
0: echo this is in between stations radio broadcasting from Flagstaff Arizona USA